Welcome and thank you for connecting with us at Parkwood Baptist Church. Here at Parkwood, we exist to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. You can find more information about our church at parkwoodonline.org. By visiting our website, you will be able to learn more about Parkwood and our mission. Now join us as we grow together through the teaching of God's Word. Second Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. If you did not pick up the elements for communion uh, as a part of the message, we will be receiving communion. They're now in the aisles behind you. Or over. I'd encourage you to go get that now because there won't be an opportunity. So while the band's finding their way to their seat, you could move and grab the elements for communion. We'll be receiving communion, not because this text commands it, but because this text points to it. Communion is a picture of our shared participation in Christ, remembering what he has done on our behalf. It's an image of who we are and what we should be, that we are one in Christ, the communion of the saints. The main idea today is that the eternal fellowship of the triune God must be the basis of our fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's no light sentence. It begins with a truth that sets Christianity apart from any other religion. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. It's often misunderstood. The Trinity is so misunderstood that you need to know this, brothers and sisters, and I just want to encourage you this. If, if someone from a cult shows up at your door, one of the things they are trained and they are taught to do this is to get you as an evangelical to discuss the Trinity because they know that 90% of evangelicals don't understand it and they'll trip you with it. So I pray you would pay attention today and learn what some of what it means when we say the Trinity so that we know that is what that what which we believe. Now the word Trinity is not in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 14, but it does contain a clear presentation of the Trinity in the form of a blessing. So much so that I used this text to teach a doctrinal series in 2010 on the Trinity. What you see in verse 13 is the eternal fellowship of the triune God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So we're starting at the very end this morning. That the blessing here that is offered applies to each and every believer. Every believer, as Paul wrote in the Corinthian church, and to each and every one who is gathered here today who is in Christ. He is speaking this blessing to all, each one. One, it's an individual blessing and it is a corporate blessing. It is something that we share together as the people of God. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, assume that you understand what I mean by the word Trinity. So let me offer a definition by Wayne Grudem that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God and there is one God. The focus in what I want to get you to think about today are the three persons of the Trinity, each individual distinction. You're going to have to think hard. I know I just got into this. All right. So engage your brain. And I'm going to say some things that you're going to go, what? 
Every person of the Godhead can say, I am. Now, I am, that's how God discloses himself, I am, because as far as you can go into the past, the present, and the future, God can always, for all of eternity, say, I am. That is, no person of the Godhead has a starting point. They are co-eternal. And not only can every person of the Godhead say, I am, the Godhead can say, I am. So their personhood speaks to the perfect relationship that exists in the Godhead. This is the only way you can explain the eternal love of God. The relationship between the three persons of the Godhead and the being of God itself. Now here's some important distinctions that we need to make. That God's being is not divided into three equal parts. So if you've ever heard somebody held up a three-leaf clover and said, this is God. There's three parts, but it's one, ple- one piece of clover. That's just not good. It doesn't work because each of those parts can all be broken off. Now you can distinctly see in the scripture, the three persons of the Godhead, but they are completely connected to one another in that the three members are one. Now, when we say God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we're not saying, well, here's God, and here are three distinct names that we could assign to God if we wanted to, or this is a wrong way to say it, that we're just looking at God in different angles. And when we look over here, we see the Father. And if we look over here, we see the Son. And if we look over here, we see the Holy Spirit. That's false as well. There are three distinct persons and each person is equal to the whole being of God. And you say, I have no idea what you're talking about. J.I. Packer said this, the Trinity is the hardest thing the human mind has ever been asked to comprehend. Now, it is essential that we understand the doctrine of the Trinity to understand the Christian faith, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice he doesn't say the grace of Jesus, the grace of Christ, the grace of our Lord. He is distinct that he is talking about the God-man, Jesus Christ, the one who came to this earth, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace that comes from Jesus and belongs to Jesus, that this grace is to be with us, is to be a continual experiential knowledge, understanding of the people of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This grace, that which we did not earn or deserve is through Christ. 
that Christ, who is fully God and fully man, came to this earth, and the one who knew no sin, who was never sinful in any way, became sin. He became sin on our behalf. Now, here's what we've got to be clear about. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He is not part God and part man. That's a falsehood. He is fully and completely God, and he is fully and completely man, and he will be so forever. He does not have a starting point. He is eternal. Now, brothers and sisters, why, why is this so important? Because here is the tripping point. I have noticed this so many times. You ask a Christian, is Jesus God? Yes. Is Jesus completely God? Yes. Has com Jesus always been God? Pause. Yes. He is fully God and fully man. Now, this week in one of my feeds, because I've been studying the Trinity and your computer ought to scare you, because I've been studying the Trinity, a video from a rabbi showed up in my feed dispelling the Trinity. You know that's how algorithms work on your computer, by the way. All right, so I thought, I'll watch it. See what he's got to say. And here's what he said. The doctrine of the Trinity is heresy. And he went on to say this. If a person says to you, or you hear someone saying, a person is the Messiah, and he'll say, I'll go this far. If someone says Jesus is the Messiah, that's fine. Here's where the heresy is. When someone says Jesus is God. Now, brothers and sisters, if Jesus is God, you have no Messiah. Because unless he is fully God, he could not have become sin for you. The sacrifice had to be sinless. The righteousness of God had to be applied to us through Christ and through Christ alone. So if he is not God, we are still in our sins. But the righteous sacrifice was made for us. Romans 5. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, what's the rest of the verse? Christ died for us. Christ, the sinless one, died for us in our place. Now in this verse, we see the grace of Christ, but we also see the love of God. That the love of God is the love that comes from God. So it comes from God. Likewise, it belongs to God. It is his and he gives it to us. First Corinthians, uh, excuse me, first John four. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, anybody know the rest of it? To be what? Propitiation. The propitiation for our sins. Now this is crucial, brothers and sisters. This, this is where a lot of people want to debunk Christianity. That God the Father sent God the Son, the sinless sacrifice who died in our place, 
who bore the wrath of God for us. That's what propitiation means. He satisfied the wrath of God in our place. Now, what motivated this? The love of God. The love of God is the reason that Christ became our propitiation, that the Father sent the Son. Now, here's the consequence of the grace of Christ and the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit. Now, some translations are going to translate that, any fellowship in the Spirit. Because it's the same Greek word, koinonia. Fellowship or participation can be translated either way, that we have participation in, that we have fellowship in the Holy Spirit. So, let's get this. Where is perfect fellowship? In the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, here's what happens. This perfect fellowship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this Trinitarian fellowship, now has a profound impact on our fellowship with each other. Because we who are in Christ are participating. We have fellowship in the Holy Spirit. And as a result, we have fellowship with each other. That's why he says, may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, this really is, next point, is the so what? That the eternal fellowship of the triune God must be the basis of our fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So I started with verse 14 so that you can understand verses 11 through 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of peace, love and peace be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Let me again start at the end. Greet one another with a holy kiss. What does this mean? It means this. Here's what Paul's calling the Corinthians to do. Thus, he is calling us to do. That when we gather, we greet one another, and we greet one another uniquely. Not that we're trying to be creative. What's the uniqueness about the kiss? What is it? It's holy. Nothing erotic about it. Nothing unbecoming about it. It's a holy kiss. Now, where outside of a marriage relationship are you going to see a, a becoming kiss happen family so the reason there is this holy kiss is because of the family we are brothers and sisters we are united in christ and you say you say pastor we need to kiss each other well particularly right now in covid it's probably not a good idea okay but in covid we better remember this we are called to greet each other and we are called to greet each other uniquely as the people of God. We should not be afraid of each other. We should not push back from one another. <laughs> one of our oldest members asked me for a hug this morning. And I usually give him a hug. I said, now, brother, I'm not going to hug you today because in 13 days, my daughter's getting married and I'm not missing it. All right. There's nothing like a hug from Gordon Bain. It's a unique thing as brothers in Christ, as a spiritual father and son, if you will. 
We are to be the brothers and sisters. Now, here's what follows or proceeds. There are five commands, imperatives. They are all in the present tense. That means these are ongoing things that are to be true in the life of the church. Now stick with me here because I'm about to pull it together. These are commanded continuous action that are to be considered in view of who God is and what he provides for and expects from his unique children. Finally, brothers and sisters, and that's a great translation for that. The word there can be translated brothers and sisters. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. In Philippians chapter four, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, how often? Always, and again, I will say rejoice. Now, why would, why would Paul say rejoice in the Lord always? It's not because he wants you to grin and bear it. It's because in the Godhead, there is infinite joy. Infinite happiness. And from the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a fountain that is flowing. It is emanating like beams from the sun. Joy. And this joy is eternal. And it's because this joy is eternal, Eternal, it is now ours through Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of, of the Holy Spirit so that we are to find this joy and we are to rejoice. Now here's how we live in temporary joy. When we continually replace rejoice in blank and you put something else there. When you put something else there, it's temporary. Now listen, I'm not saying putting something else there is bad. On December the 19th, I'm going to rejoice that my daughter is getting married. I'm going to find tremendous joy in that day, but it'll pass. It's not going to last forever. So I don't find my lasting joy in something that is temporary. I find my lasting joy where it can only be found, and that is in God himself. So rejoice. Aim for restoration. Question, is there any conflict in the Godhead? No. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are never in disagreement. They never are at odds with each other. So by the grace of God, and the, by the grace of Jesus, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that should dictate our relationships with each other. We're not God. Conflict arises. However, since the Spirit of God resides in us as followers of Christ, we should seek in every way to be restored with one another regardless of the conflict. It is a reflection of who we are and who resides in us. We comfort one another. This comfort involves the need to be comforted. God does not need to be comforted. But he knows that we do. So how do we comfort each other? Go back to the beginning of 2 Corinthians with me, chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, 
who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now you clearly see the Father and Son in this verse, these verses, right? Okay, now let's take the whole counsel of Scripture. What name did Jesus give to the Holy Spirit when he comes? The Comforter. We are comforted by God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that comfort which he gives to us, through us, we give to one another. That is to be the image of who we are as the people of God. Then he says, agree with one another. Let's go back to the Godhead for a moment. The mind of the Father is the mind of the Son, which is the mind of the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons who are in one perfect agreement. They're not in agreement for the sake of peace at all costs. They're absolutely in unity and truth, in agreement in the will of God. That's why Jesus said when the Spirit comes, he will lead you into what? All truth. That we come to this agreement together over the will of God. This is an active agreement, an active unity. It's not something that's passive. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Same mind and same judgment. Brothers and sisters, you've heard me say this. I'm going to say it again. One of the great griefs of my life over the last several months is to watch people be at odds with each other over things going on in the world. You are the people of God. The word of God by the spirit of God gives you the same mind and the same judgment. Seek through the word of God by the spirit of God to agree with one another. Here's what I believe. I believe we're in a world now that this is the determination and the prodding that we're getting from the world. Disagree. Disagree. Find something to disagree. And we have the prompting of the Spirit and the guidance of the Word of God that says to us as the people of God, agree with one another. Live in peace. Hold to God that we would live in peace. In the Godhead, peace. Paul says that you would have peace that passes what? Understanding. That's the kind of peace there is in the Godhead. It's beyond your ability to comprehend. And that's his desire for us as his people. How does this happen? It happens as Paul told the Philippians. If there are any encouragement, any love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Back to 2 Corinthians. And it just flows even from that verse. And the God of love and peace will be with you. 
will be. There's a condition here. Do you hear it? You do these five imperatives and the God of love and peace will be with you. It doesn't mean it's up to us. It doesn't mean we seek our own solution, the own, our own way. The solution and the provision have been supplied. So act accordingly. So to experience the blessing, the Corinthians have to take the initiative. Paul's saying sovereignty doesn't cancel out your responsibility. Act accordingly. And when you do, the love and peace will be with you. H.B. Charles on this text said, what holds the church together? The church is held together by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This is why I can't be a true Christian and say, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. Why? Because if I'm saved, the Holy Spirit is in me. And if you are saved, the Holy Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit in you is not going to tell you not to have anything to do with the Holy Spirit in me. And if the Holy Spirit is in us, he will cause us to love one another. The Jesus in me will love the Jesus in you. This has been Paul's argument the entire time. This has been his thesis. He's never left it. So I want you to turn all the way back to the beginning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul ends where he started. Verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the so what for months over a year of time in first and second Corinthians, I say to us, let us rejoice in our fellowship in the Holy Spirit in the love of God by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a shared rejoicing. We are brothers and sisters. We have the same Father, the same Savior, and we are indwelt by the same Spirit. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit as adoption as sons by whom we, not me, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. 
And if we suffer, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor depth nor height nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The night which Jesus betrayed, he left a meal. He, he left this image. That's what I want my people to be. I want my people to be in communion. So I'm going to leave them a reminder. And this reminder is mainly going to point to me. It's going to point to what I did, that I shed my blood on the cross for them, that I came to this earth and I was the perfect sacrifice. It's going to remind them. But it's also going to remind them this, that they are one in Christ. That's why you don't take communion in your quiet time. You take communion with the people of God together. And what we're about to do is for Christians. It's not for non-believers. Taking communion does not make you a Christian. Because you are a Christian, you receive it. It's a picture of what's already true. So I want you to take this little packet. Now, here's what I don't like about this. This thing's loud. So let's get the loud over with. Get it all opened and separated. What we're about to do is a picture. It's a picture of our shared union with Christ. So let us together humble ourselves as we rejoice, as we come forgiving one another, seeking restoration, as we come in the comfort of the Spirit, as we come agreeing together that Christ is the only way to salvation, as we come knowing we have peace with God through Christ, may we come with humility. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let us proclaim it to one another yet again. May you receive Lord Jesus, as we bow before you and as we 
anticipate the Advent season as we think of your birth, as we think of your coming, just as we've broken this bread through our teeth, it was real. It really came. God, you so love the world that you sent your son. We beheld his glory full of grace and truth. And we saw that most clearly on the cross as you shed your blood in our place. And we see your victory through the power of the resurrection. And we are reminded today of what you have done and who you've called us to be. And we proclaim this to ourselves until you come because we know you are coming. And you will receive us to yourself and we shall be with you for all of eternity and we will know you even as we are known. So sustain us with these truths. Show us how to love each other. And may we heed the commands of scripture before us today that this local body of believers, that we might reflect who we claim to be. Brothers and sisters, followers of Christ, bless us now as we respond and as we sing. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand and sing. Amen.